Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's Project Censored Show, we look at the ongoing controversies around mis- and disinformation online, particularly with social media. Recently, a whistleblower from Facebook came forward and now has revealed her identity as Frances Haugen, did a series of interviews with the Wall Street Journal and recently 60 Minutes and testified before Congress about the problems of places like Facebook and how they work on purpose algorithmically to deliberately polarize the public and spread misinformation. It seems as though Congress is being asked to regulate. It seems that there are calls for even more censorship. On today's Project Censored show, we hear from two critical media literacy scholars to get a different take on our current mis- and disinformation dilemma. Stay tuned for the Project Censored show. Welcome to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're going to look at the state of our so-called free press, and we're going to turn our attention again to the ongoing fiascos of fake news, mis- and disinformation, and social media. It seems that every time we turn around, there is yet another specter looming and and haunting us about mis- and disinformation, whether it's about foreign policy or public health. And lately, we saw what at least was cast by the corporate media as a bombshell whistleblower with Francis Haugen at Facebook coming out and saying that Facebook is a really insidious platform, that it stokes division, that despite CEO Mark Zuckerberg's public pronouncements that they were trying to mitigate or deal with the many problems of social media and hatred and spread of violence, that also was a big issue. But we now are seeing Congress turn its eyes once again to social media, this whistleblower in particular calling for government regulation. Mark Zuckerberg seemingly welcoming said congressional action, which could result in regulation. But we've got two experts with us today that are going to help unpack all of this, and we will probably get well beyond the specifics of this particular whistleblower. We'll also talk about the dynamics of whistleblowing and which whistleblowers corporate media seem to like and which ones they don't and why. And that is, of course, germane to this case as well. Our guests are with us for the hour. But first, let me introduce Alan McLeod. He's no stranger to the program. Senior staff writer for Mint Press News. Completed his Ph.D. in 2017. He has two published books, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting, and also edited Propaganda in the Information Age. Still Manufacturing Consent, a stellar collection, I'd say that book is, as well as uh, Alan McLeod's published a number of academic articles. He contributes to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, The Guardian, Salon, Gray Zone, and many other publications. Alan McLeod, welcome to the program. It's great to be back with you. Thanks for making time to come on the Project Censored show. Our other guest today, no stranger to the Project Censored audience. Yet again, we're joined by Nolan Higdon. Nolan is a professor and lecturer of history, media studies, teaches at California State East Bay, University of California, Santa Cruz, among other places. He's author of numerous books and academic articles, including with me, we co-authored United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America, and What We Can Do About It from City Lights Books. Nolan also is the author of The Anatomy of 
Fake News, a critical news literacy education from UC Press. And also forthcoming, uh, he's the author with Nick Bayham of a book called The Podcaster's Dilemma that will be out either later this year or early next, the subtitle Decolonizing Podcasters in the Era of Surveillance Capitalism. And Nolan and I also just finished another book for Rutledge, a critical thinking textbook called Let's Agree to Disagree. Nolan Higdon, uh, you also teach many courses in media literacy, particularly around social media. And all of a sudden, you've been getting a lot of calls lately since uh, social media platforms and controversies swirling around them have have hit the corporate media and corporate news again. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Project Censored Show. Nolan Higdon. This is great. Looking forward to speaking with you and Alan. Absolutely. And I had the pleasure of speaking with you all earlier this week with Mintcast, with the Mint Press News podcast. And so, Alan McLeod, let's start with you. You have long looked at problems of the digital platforms in media. You've looked at behind-the-scenes problems of various kinds of censorship that are involved with social media and deplatforming. We've had, of course, this whistleblower, Francis Haugen, from Facebook come forward and make what would be damning accusations. But for those of us that have actually paid attention to these platforms, the things that are being said aren't really new or aren't really news Yet the corporate media has really glommed on to this particular person and the particular hearings going on now in Washington, D.C. this past week. So, Alan McLeod, just get some of your initial commentary on this issue. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Mickey, actually. A lot of what Francis Haugen is saying is really old news, frankly. The, the idea that Facebook channels people into content that is controversial or divisive, and they do that because they know right, it gets clicks, it draws eyeballs, and ultimately it serves their profit motive. This has really been alleged for years and years, and frankly, anybody spending a lot of time on Facebook has seen people falling down different rabbit holes. And this is one of the real issues of the modern era. We no longer have a broadcast media where there were a couple of channels, two or three of them, or a few newspapers, and they would all essentially, they would be in a spectrum of opinion, but they would all essentially present something akin to reality. I'm certainly not somebody looking back on those uh, on those days with uh, rose-tinted glasses or anything. There were so many problems with that, you know, who got to speak, who didn't get to speak, who the media was controlled and owned by. But at least it gave us some sort of common standing which we could build on. Nowadays, it's really nothing of that. I'm sure we all have examples of people we knew, maybe people from school or relatives who have fallen down some sort of rabbit hole. And now they just sound like they're from the planet Neptune when you're talking to them. There's no common ground whatsoever. So I think a lot of what Francis Haugen is saying should be met with a bit of a shrug and say, yeah, we knew this already. However, the fact that she comes from Facebook is really important. I mean, it's an enormous platform. 69% of American adults use Facebook. And it's actually a myth that it's only old people on there. It actually skews young, even to this day. Millennials and Gen Z are the most likely generations to be using it. And half of Americans use Facebook daily, according to a 2021 poll by Pew. And 36% of those adults in America, which translates to roughly 93 million people, use Facebook as their primary news source. That's incredible, the sort of reach they have. I mean, think about what CNN and MSNBC can pull in, maybe one million at best for a news program. And only two U.S. newspapers have a circulation of one million, USA Today and Wall Street Journal. So Facebook has this enormous power. It really is a public forum. 
but a lot of people still consider it this private entity. And there's this kind of duality going on here with some people saying, well, you know, it's a private entity, there's no free speech regulation. Other people saying this is essentially a public forum, it should be treated as such. But the reality is, is that there's a third option, and that's the one that's being pursued. The government is kind of controlling Facebook at arm's length, using you know, the excuse that it's a private company when it wants to, and then heavily pressurizing the company to do things that's in the US government interest. And we've seen countless examples of that. And in fact, Frances Haugen is kind of talking about that as well. She's talking about the need for more members of the US national security state to be involved with Facebook because her allegations are that China and Iran, other US enemies, are using this to spy on their own populations and push their own agendas internationally. And the US actually has to combat this with a sort of electronic self-defense. And I think that's one of the reasons why Haugen has been championed so much by the establishment. I mean, she was called the 21st century hero by a member of the Senate. So her whistleblowing, while perhaps embarrassing for Facebook, is kind of being embraced by, for want of a better word, the establishment. And that means that she seems to be posing no serious threat to them, unlike other whistleblowers who quite often go to jail for doing similar things. You gave us a lot to think about there off the bat, Alan McLeod, and thank you for getting the conversation started. Nolan Hankton, let's bring you in here right where Alan left off. There's a lot to unpack there. Start where you want, but I know I definitely want to come back around to who Frances Haugen is, we're now learning more about her. You can learn more at FrancisHaugen.com. has a website set up already with her story and who she is, seemed uh, ready-made for the corporate primetime media circus that's been going on here. Talks about her being recruited to Facebook to be a product manager on the civic misinformation team. Was also referred to as a civic integrity team that was disbanded after last year's election. Haugen definitely believes that misinformation is a risk to democracy, as Alan was just suggesting here. Alan gives a great overview. I'll just add some things to it to build off what Alan has already said. One is we also can't deny that the so-called legacy media or corporate news media, they also finally sort of come around, especially in the last five or so years, to recognizing that digital media is a competitor. And so these revelations are something they can use to, to attack one of their competitors in the marketplace. The second thing is, regardless of what this whistleblower advocates for, Silicon Valley and digital tools, they emerged straight from the United States government and the national security state. The national security state always had a problem selling the American public on constant surveillance. But, you know, you put a thumbs up emblem or you say, don't do evil or whatever from Google. And then all of a sudden people are willing to have these things in their home surveilling them all the time. There's that. And there's these continued contracts within the industry. I mean, you've got like Amazon and the CIA, you've got the revelations from Snowden, so it's not like it's going to be new if the national security and intelligence state are involved with Silicon Valley. The other thing I think Americans should consider is that we need to take a global lens when we talk about this issue. Facebook and all of these companies, the platform differs depending upon which country you're in. They have different sets of requirements and moderation and things like that. So the question comes, where does that come from? And this is where I think Zuckerberg really shows his naivete about the international business place. He always thought he could just work with whatever regimes were in power to shape his platform in a way that didn't upset those in power so it could be used within those borders. So he already works with regimes like China and Russia and the United States. This has been going on for a long time. So in that sense, I don't think we're really in a new era. For those of us who've been paying attention, 
we've known this kind of stuff is going on for a long time. It's nice that it's in the, the public sphere. I will say that one of my concerns, though, about it, it being out there is it's really being shaped largely as an issue of Facebook and not an issue of big tech. Like I noticed on a lot of social media platforms, people are posting petitions, you know, like sign this petition to end Facebook. Well, well, they're sending it out on like Twitter and Google and things like that. It's like those platforms are also contributing to this, this larger problem. So I think we need to contextualize it both in terms of the industry, industry relations between digital and legacy, and then largely in a global lens as well. So many things to unpack there, particularly internationally. You and I are in the United States. Alan's in the UK. And so you start to go down the list of other countries. Some of these companies, Facebook, Twitter in particular, Google, don't be evil. They want to have it as being pro-First Amendment or pro-free speech on one end, but pro-protection of their proprietary algorithms and so forth on the other. Yes, we're good, but no, we're not. And it wasn't our fault. And the dog ate our homework. There's a lot of that hand-wringing that goes on at these congressional dog and pony shows, for lack of a, a more sophisticated term. But in many cases, that's what's happening here. And Alan McLeod, the person of interest here who we've been talking about, Francis Haugen, was anonymous to the Wall Street Journal. They did a several-part series on these issues. They echoed many of the concerns from published volumes of scholars over the last several years. So back to that issue of, I'm not sure there's anything new here coming out of these so-called revelations. It's just they're now catapulted to emergency media status. All of a sudden, Francis Haugen, from the anonymous to now named whistleblower that's talking about how Facebook is ruining democracy, her background at Google, Pinterest, Yelp, then on to Facebook, and as a specialist in algorithmic product management. And the reason that this stuff seems interesting to me is that this is an opportunity, as Nolan just suggested, Maybe this information isn't new, but it is presenting an opportunity to have a bigger, broader, maybe more in-depth discussion about what exactly is going on at these social media companies in the first place. And Alan McLeod, after this quick break we're going to take, I want to talk to you more about who some of these people are. And you mentioned earlier you know, the desire they have in Silicon Valley to work more in surveillance to work even more under the umbrella of national security. Just wanted to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, speaking with media scholars Alan McLeod and Nolan Higdon, talking about social media mis- and disinformation and latest reports from a whistleblower from Facebook. We'll continue our conversation after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are delighted to bring media scholars Alan McLeod and Nolan Higdon both authors of numerous books. Uh, Alan's work is on Mint Press News, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, several other places. Nolan Higdon, also author of several books, also writes online for Counterpunch and several other publications. And gentlemen, we've been talking about the latest so-called revelations of the Facebook whistleblower. And Alan McLeod, before the break, you two had both set up the multifaceted issues that are connected here. I want to go back to that issue that this whistleblower is being embraced by the corporate media, it seems. That's part maybe of the narrative that Nolan Higdon brought up about legacy and digital media and the conflicts between new and old media. But Alan McLeod, what do you make of the fact that some whistleblowers, like Julian Assange, are in prison for the work they've done at WikiLeaks? Chelsea Manning, Thomas Drake, 
John Kuriakow, the enemies of the deep state, people that have all done prison time for whistleblowing, reality winner. I mean, we could go on and on. And Alan, you've covered a lot of these people. Why is it that the corporate media has an interest in some whistleblowers, but the interest they have in others is shooting the messenger? It all depends upon what sort of information these whistleblowers are bringing forward. Somebody like Julian Assange, who leaked a huge amount of documents that embarrassed governments, big corporations all around the world, is treated as persona non grata, as the biggest threat to democracy. He's been in prison for a couple of years now. Before that, he was you know, locked in the embassy in London. Just a couple of weeks ago, it came out that Yahoo News did this big story about how the Pompeo CIA were considering just shooting up central London and killing him or kidnapping him. And yet Haugen has been basically welcomed by the government. I think that's because her revelations are not really embarrassing the government or really challenging them in any way. I want to just pick up on something Nolan said about the global lens and what you said about how Silicon Valley is very difficult sometimes. One of the things that I look at in my work as I've moved away from academia and towards journalism is the relationship between Silicon Valley and the national security state. There's all sorts of complex interlocking connections with the two to the point where it's sometimes it's difficult to see where one ends and the other starts. So for instance, we're talking about Facebook. Facebook in 2018 partnered with the Atlantic Council, which is NATO's think tank, and they essentially gave the Atlantic Council significant control over the entire world's newsfeed, which is 2.9 billion people. Now, if you look at the Atlantic Council's board, it's directly funded by the US government, other NATO countries, by NATO itself. Its board is full of Bush-era administration officials like Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice and Baker. There's seven former CIA directors on the board. Also, Henry Kissinger is there. And that is really who is making decisions about what Americans see and what they don't see on their news feeds. And not just Americans, it's billions of people around the world. And so when we get to this point, that is tantamount to global state censorship on a level that we never see before. I'll give you one example of that. In 2020, last year, the US government, the Trump administration, assassinated Iranian statesman Qasem Soleimani. Soleimani was Iran's most popular public figure. A University of Maryland study found that over 80% of the population had a positive view of Soleimani. He was killed in Iraq while attending a peace conference with Saudi Arabia, which the prime minister of Iraq had set up and specifically asked Donald Trump permission to allow Soleimani into the country, which Trump used his whereabouts to assassinate him. Now, there was obviously a lot of uh, angry sentiment in Iran because of this, but because the Trump administration had designated Soleimani and his Revolutionary Guard Corps organization a terrorist group. All messages and posts that suggested that Soleimani was a hero or not a terrorist had to be removed from Facebook platforms. And that's a real problem when one in three Iranians are using Instagram. So we've got this situation where Iranians speaking to other Iranians in Iran, in Farsi, can't express a majority opinion, which perhaps 90 to 98% of the country had, that this was an outrageous assault on Iran by the Trump administration. Their posts are being wiped. And Facebook specifically said it's because we are an American company and we are bound by the laws that the US government sends. This is just one example of the sort of level of control that the US government has over social media and the internet more generally. Nolan Higdon, you want to come in here? 
Alan's point is something worth emphasizing, and this is something that Mickey and I wrote about in the United States of Distraction. The only news frame that the United States media system really seems comfortable with is a, a partisan lens. And the partisan lens really doesn't work in terms of social media because Zuckerberg and Dorsey and these folks, um, companies like Twitter, Google, Amazon, they'll give money to whatever political party serves them. They're not ideologically aligned with these parties. People forget, we now think of like social media deplatforming Donald Trump and move, removing right-wing voices. We forget that, that Donald Trump's campaign spent $100 million in 2016, was able to get private meetings with Facebook teams on how to use the platform. And then in 2019 and 2020, during the election season, Trump was holding meetings with Mark Zuckerberg. It's only once Zuckerberg realized Trump lost the election that Zuckerberg changed his mind and started working with the Democrats to remove Trump and all these things. That sort of flip-floppy, wish-washy approach just illustrates that it's it's not ideology. It's all about the platform, which political party they align with. Which brings up some other fascinating points, such as on a lot of different listservs, teaching the kind of things that, that we do, writing about the kind of things we do. I specifically sign up for conservative political figures, conservative sites, left sites across the spectrum. And one thing that I, I, I find interesting is that both of these groups decry censorship on college campuses. Both of these groups decry Silicon Valley control and censorship. You could basically read these screeds that they send out on these email lists, and all you need to do is change the name of the party or the political figure and change the name of the hot button topic for what passes for political communication in the United States. The bipartisan yet simultaneous schizophrenic situation we have here with political parties, corporate backing, and their relationships to Silicon Valley. People have forgotten this because of the, the news cycle, but at the end of 2020, you remember Mitch McConnell did not want to send out $2,000 stimulus checks to every American. And so the way he killed it was not by refusing to bring the bill to the floor. He said, I'll bring the bill to the floor, but it's going to be tied to repealing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And I know none of you in Congress will dare turn against big tech. And that's exactly what happened. The, the bill didn't pass. So it's that sort of bipartisan support. When the media frames it as a partisan issue, then you only look at it through that partisan lens. You don't even consider reaching out to the other ideological side to collaborate and work to rein in the power of big tech. Instead, you fight each other. And that's just it's an illustration of the power of news media to, to shape the way we look at these issues. Alan McLeod, your thoughts? Looking at America, I kind of struck about with the idea that maybe these two parties are much more similar to each other than they are with the American public. Sometimes it seems like they're the same coin, just two different sides of it. And all this extreme bickering seems like the narcissism of small differences. And ultimately, Silicon Valley and big tech more generally, they do have a lot of power, but it has been co-opted and it's been co-opted willingly so. There was a book by Eric Schmidt and Larry Cohen, The New Digital Age. They're the executives of Google. They wrote, what Lockheed Martin was to the 20th century, technology and cyber companies like Google will be to the 21st. And so they're specifically saying that they want to use big tech as kind of the tip of the spear for the US empire for US foreign policy. And who did they get to blurb the book right on the back cover? Henry Kissinger, none other than the man himself. A similar thing that's going on in other places. In 2019, a senior executive at Twitter was unmasked as an active duty officer in the British Army's 77th Brigade, which is their online psychological operations group. 
nobody reported it in the US. There was only one outlet that reported it, even though it was at the height of the foreign interference in our society debate that we were having. That site was uh, Newsweek. The, the journalist who did that, I interviewed him. Just three weeks later, he was essentially forced to resign his position. And, you know, since then, he hasn't had a job. So frankly, whenever these sorts of things get exposed, there's an enormous yawn from corporate media, which you can kind of infer quite a lot from that. So it sounds that this is the digital platform for social media. It's yet another way in your book, The Anatomy of Fake News. You write about the different kinds of fake news from you know satire to infotainment to more insidious types of propaganda, half-truths, big lies. And of course, you also talk about things like intelligence agencies. Alan McLeod was just talking about in the UK. In the US, the CIA, no stranger of controlling these kind of narratives or utilizing media. We've even seen the CIA in the past year or two come out as a woke social justice organization with this special message. I mean, this is, this is an organization that was basically founded in the dark shadows of World War II at the beginning of the Cold War to fight out these Cold Wars where hot ones were less politically tenable. And a big arm of that was information control and information warfare. And you and I have certainly written about this. Riffing off of what Alan was saying with Henry Kissinger from the Atlantic Council, what are a few things that you might add about your research that really looks at who these folks are behind these companies, what their interests are, and the idea that somehow that these folks are actually concerned about the health of our public sphere, that they're actually worried about misinformation's impact on democracy, given their behaviors that might be quite suspect? It's a great question. I think it reveals that whenever we talk about combating or mitigating fake news or false information, propaganda, whatever it may be, I generally try not to argue with people about the information they're attempting to target. I more want to argue with folks about who or what organization do you intend to empower to achieve this goal? That, that's the larger question. And when they point to things like tech, you know, I remind them that the digital tech industry, Silicon Valley, its whole business model is predicated on spreading false information, spreading fear, spreading hate. These are the themes of fake news. That's what my, my research has found. And then on the opposite side, folks who look for like government solutions, like outlawing fake news, I remind them that there's centuries of governments or people in forms of leadership creating false information as a way to centralize their power. And this includes democracies. Here in the United States, at least since World War I, we've had well-organized, well-funded government efforts to co-opt technological innovation so they can spread information and shape public opinion through many mechanisms, but including fake news. And with the advent of the digital era, it's only gotten worse. And that's why Renee Diestra and, and others have pointed out, we're in the middle of an information war. And, and she's not alone. I mean, there's tons of scholars and, and national security folks who admit this, that false information is coming from governments all around the world. So when we talk about mitigating it, I'm saying, do you want to empower the very industry that has created a business model that has perpetuated this problem? Do you want to empower the very government that has cynically use this information for centuries to empower themselves, who do you want to empower? And that's why as, as critical media literacy scholars, we always advocate for, look, you have to educate the individual to sift through this false information. If, if you think you're going to empower these institutions and solve the problem, you're, you're delusionary. You're setting yourself up to be exploited worse. Alan McLeod? 
Yeah, I think that's a great point. Ultimately, fake news is as American as apple pie. If you read The Anatomy of Fake News by Nolan Higdon, you'll know that the very first piece of information ever sent from America to Europe was fake news. That was Columbus's report about the Indies or what he thought was Asia, about how it's a land filled with gold and all the people here are savages and they don't have any technology, all that stuff. The first newspaper in American history was called Public Occurrences, both foreign and domestic, and it was shut down by the government after one edition for printing fake news or what they actually termed sundry doubtful and uncertain reporting. And ultimately, when you really think about the worst and most pernicious false stories of this century, we really have to go back to have a look at the ludicrous lies that were told by government officials about WMD in Iraq or about Gaddafi's Viagra-fueled rape squads in Libya. Both of these things were pushed by serious outlets like the New York Times and CNN and The Guardian and, you know, all the big networks. Those things led to wars which killed, in Iraq's case, maybe a million people and destroyed an entire region of the earth. And so ultimately, I think we really have to go beyond the idea that fake news is something that's just limited to what your grandma posts on Facebook about vaccines or something like that. It's much more pernicious. And the organizations that are in a position to push fake news and do the most damage are actually the ones at the top of society that present themselves as the solution to this problem. And it's a bit like asking the foxes to guard the hen house. It's frankly crazy what's going on. And we're going to talk about that problem after this break. I'd like to remind you that you're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, speaking with media scholars and authors Alan McLeod and Nolan Higdon, talking about the problems of social media, the so-called free press, and the ongoing problems of fake news, propaganda, and censorship in the 21st century. We'll continue our conversation after this brief break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today's program, we are, of course, focusing on all things media. Specifically, we're looking at a recent testimony from Facebook Whistleblower. We're looking at potential of regulating social media. We are talking about the many problems of social media as a disseminator of falsehood and false information. We are joined by Alan McLeod, senior staff writer at Mint Press News. After finishing his PhD in 2017, published two books, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Reporting, and edited Propaganda and the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. Uh, Of course, riffing on Ed Herman and Noam Chomsky's work on the propaganda model 30 years after its publication. Nolan Higdon also joins us, no stranger to the Project Censored audience, author of numerous books on media and journalism issues, including The Anatomy of Fake News, He's got a couple of books coming out here as well, including Podcaster's Dilemma and a critical thinking textbook called Let's Agree to Disagree. Gentlemen, before the break, we were getting into some conversations about the forces behind social media and them being uh, sort of the top companies in our economy. These companies are very much responsible for sowing division and confusion with their algorithmic for-profit models in social media. But we've also heard earlier in the conversation that these outlets spread information, misinformation, and let's focus here in the United States. Many Americans actually now rely on social media as an aggregator of journalism and news, which really is where we see the super blurring lines here of what's going on with these kind of companies. And we can open up this segment with one of my favorite old quotes from Jonathan Swift from 1710. Falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. 
so that when one comes to be undeceived, it's too late. The jest is over. The tale hath had its effect. Like a person who had thought of a good repartee when the discourse is changed or the company parted, or a physician who found an infallible medicine after the patient is dead. So metaphorically, coming from Swift, the swiftness with which false information flies around the world is incredible, and social media has clearly exacerbated that problem in the 21st century. So that is an issue. That people do use social media as a journalistic source is also a concern, one that could be mitigated by critical media literacy education, and we'll get into that here this half hour. But Alan McLeod, let's take a look at this. And again, devil's advocacy. The whistleblower from Facebook, Francis Haugen, wasn't really telling us anything that we didn't know. But what of the concerns of the spread of this misinformation? Nolan Higdon earlier mentioned Rene DiResta, new knowledge. We'll come back to them in a little bit because of their role after the 2016 election in the United States. But let's talk about this real problem of misinformation. And do you think that government regulation is going to fix this? Do you think social media can or will bother to address this? Or is there another way that we need to be looking at this serious challenge we face? Alan McLeod. Well, you know, the rise of social media has had a lot of positive effects. It means they've pretty much limited barriers to any sort of publishing. It used to be the case that you had to buy a printing press or start an entire radio show to even get your voice heard. But now anyone with a smartphone can access the internet, can post stuff and become their own publishing house. And that's great for some things, but it also means that anything can go up. And those sorts of things, as Jonathan Swift said, can go viral before the truth, you know, even gets out of bed. And so that's a real problem. And we have seen serious issues going on, especially in the United States, but all over the world, where people believe these absolutely crazy theories. It's driving a lot of partisan politics, a lot of polarization. In some cases, it's even led to tragedy with crazy conspiracy theories. For instance, that the Democrats are running a child sex ring underneath a pizza restaurant in D.C. that led to multiple people turning up with guns and one guy started firing as well. That could have been absolutely terrible. So there is definitely a problem. And anybody who's spent time on Facebook or Twitter or wherever they get their social media uh, fix from knows that this is a serious problem. However, if big tech companies wanted to fix this, they really could have done this a long time ago. When YouTube changed its algorithm to dissuade fake news and promote genuine reporting, the next day, the number one viewed video on their platform was something about the Sandy Hook shootings being fake. So ultimately, this really didn't work. And really, the people who got absolutely hammered by this were high quality alternative news sites like Mint Press News, like The Intercept, like Democracy Now!, like Counterpunch, who saw their traffic fall by as much as 90% overnight. And so ultimately, websites and news sources that challenge the status quo have been deranked, delisted, demoted, and in a very few cases, actually deleted. So ultimately, while censorship might be one tool in the bag, we really have to ask who is going to be deciding this. And it looks like it's going to be a bunch of pointy-headed people in Silicon Valley who we don't even know their names, or it's going to be some sort of uh, unelected quasi-governmental organization, perhaps with links to the national security state. And I don't think either of the rules people have really got the First Amendment and the welfare of the American people completely as their number one priority. 
that's been demonstrated by uh, numerous cases that you've documented in your writing, that we've documented at Project Censored. Certainly Nolan Higdon has documented in his many books and articles. So Nolan, we do have some challenges. I wouldn't suggest they're new based on the Jonathan Swift quote going back several centuries. And certainly your book, Anatomy of Fake News, outlines that long, long shadow of the problem of propaganda and information control and so on. But what do you see coming down the pike here? Will we see maybe government regulation? What's that going to look like given issues of regulatory capture? It's tough to tell. I mean, but anybody who studied history, particularly in the United States, is aware that generally the government doesn't do anything unless it's pressured. Pressure can come from like the financial interests of elite corporations, or it can come from the people if they assemble and put pressure on their elected leaders. Um, so I guess it's a question of how much these revelations actually motivate people to put pressure on their elected leaders. Will this become like a dominant story? That's why earlier I said I'm kind of concerned about the reduction of this topic down to just Facebook, that all the IRS be for Facebook and not this larger context of big tech, which is where you think you have to put that regulation framework if you decide to, to do it. Things like breaking up big monopolies, discussing things like libel, slander, defamation. Is there room for that within these platforms? And I've been a big advocate for if you're going to leave these platforms the way they are, at least putting the data dividend which is people should get money back for the data they're giving away for free as they use these platforms. So I think there's some, some things you could do, but I don't see any of it happening unless you put pressure on platforms. To Alan's other point, some of these problems absolutely are the same. The spread of false information, people's inability to determine fact from fiction. But there are new complications from this. The fact that we have a record of so much we say, the fact that we have information overload, the fact that it's not only we can say it to people in our immediate region, but that we can actually type something that, that goes out to the world and we can receive messages from the entire world. This creates all new sorts of complications. It also creates new difficulties for us to, to deal with, like ideas of things like cyberbullying or personal attacks that take place online affect people economically, socially, mentally, or in terms of health. That wasn't a major cause of most old media that happened on like a global scale like this. So I think the problem is huge and, and there's a lot of possibilities, as, as Alan points out, for things to be done to move it in the right direction. But ultimately, it's going to take the will of the citizenry to put pressure on elected leaders to accomplish that. And so, Alan, do we see whether and in the UK there's different standards, but um, you both bring up some fantastic points. And back to Nolan's, the will of the people what do we think is going on here in the latest hearings at Congress? Can either of you speak to, do you see the American public mobilizing around this issue, wanting something to actually be done about misinformation, or is the American public too divided to understand that there's merit to having more than one perspective? There's merit to having more than one news source that, that appeals to someone's confirmation bias. Given that this whistleblower in particular for Facebook has been embraced by corporate media, which is suspect in and of itself, and the things that they're saying and calling for aren't really new, and, and some of them do sound like censorship and, and more state involvement, Alan, what are your views on this? And maybe you have a different take on it from the UK, but where do you see the public on this? The US has definitely got the most generous idea about free speech in the Western world. It's been, you know, codified into law. And that was specifically, you know, due to court cases in the 1960s, etc. Certainly, when you look at polls, the public of the US definitely wants something to be done about misinformation on Facebook. I don't think many people trust what they read online. 
they are aware that, that this is a huge quagmire that's going on. However, when you actually ask them for what sort of solutions they want to see, they're all over the place. And generally, these are heavily associated with what political party they're interested in. If it's a Democrat and Trump is in office, they're all for Trump getting banned. If they're a Republican, they absolutely hate the idea, but actually they don't mind when left-wingers get deplatformed. And so ultimately, I think there's a lot of quite myopic views about what censorship could look like. Ultimately, I think Edward Snowden said it the best, which was that when Trump was deplatformed, he said, listen, if you can look past the next 12 days, which is how long Trump had left in office, this is going to come around and bite you in the ass. And ultimately, we don't want the biggest, baddest, powerful institutions in the world having this kind of power. Ultimately, we do need to do something. But I think that, as uh, Nolan said, could be done with a lot more critical media literacy in schools, all sorts of things that could help regulating big tech, breaking them up, nationalizing them. These are all potential solutions that nobody's really talking about seriously, but really should be. So we want to pick up on the solutions and other things to do that don't involve censorship and blacklisting and deplatforming. I'd like to remind our listeners you're tuned to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, speaking with media scholars Alan McLeod and Nolan Higdon. We'll continue our conversation in the final segment of today's show after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. In the last segment here today, we continue our conversation with media scholars Alan McLeod and Nolan Higdon. Alan McLeod writes for Mint Press News. He has written for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Common Dreams, several other outlets. After completing his PhD in 2017, he published two books, Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Reporting, and also edited Propaganda and the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. We are also joined by Nolan Higdon, author most recently of The Anatomy of Fake News, a critical news literacy education, has a book coming out again this fall and early next year, one called The Podcaster's Dilemma on decolonizing podcasting in an era of surveillance capitalism, and a critical thinking textbook called Let's Agree to Disagree. And Nolan Higdon, that's kind of where we end up in social media, is the efficacy, the importance, the significance of learning how to agree to disagree and having that be one of the principles coming from free expression, free speech, a free press. When we look at social media, journalism, and uh, information dissemination from that perspective, we don't champion censorship. We don't champion shutting down, quote, the other side. And in this case, we heard before the break, Alan McLeod saying, maybe what we need to be talking about more specifically as a society, is breaking up these huge monopolies, breaking up these large Silicon Valley tech companies, having different kinds of regulation and oversight over them. But certainly media scholars are very wary of regulation and censorship, depending upon who's doing it and how transparent it is. And both of you have brought up those challenges. So Nolan Higdon, in a lot of your publications, you do talk about solutions and you do talk about ways to address these very real challenges of mis- and disinformation. Could you outline a few of these ideas that you think might be not just worth trying, but necessary? I think, you know, I think ultimately it's going to begin with education. Part of the education and effective education process is, in terms of media, is looking at the power dynamics that shape the production and consumption of media. Because part of that education process, I think, could really help inform what I see as an opportunity to, to dismantle the power of big tech. Um, just looking at, at these Facebook revel revelations, if we start with the um, premise that, that 
the kind of defining problem here is that all of the power of big tech is centralized in the hands of few corporations that now have undue influence on our communication, our culture, our politics. I think you can make the case to anybody or enough people, I should say, within the United States and probably other countries that it's in their interest to break up big tech. I think you could get right-wingers on board by talking about, you know, you're going to get rid of the power of big tech to permeate cancel culture. I think you could get old leftists on board to show the ways in which material conditions are further eroded for working people thanks to big tech and algorithms. I think you get cultural leftists by showing the algorithms of oppression that perpetuate racism, sexism, homophobia, and other hateful ideologies. And even for people who are not majorly politically charged, Parents, I think parents could get involved with the idea that what's happening to your children, these mental health effects and physical health effects from using these platforms, and these platforms know this, and not only know that, but are continuing to target children to get them on the platforms. I think there's a real possibility there to build a coalition, but again, you need that education infrastructure to talk about these issues, to talk about how democracy works, and we may disagree on every single issue out there. But this one issue we can agree on, and it's in our interest to work on it together. So, Nolan Higdon, I'm glad you brought this up because the latest angle that is becoming more prominent is what's happening with social media platforms and the targeting of young people, the targeting of children. Some European countries have long regulated this, made it a crime to target children with media, particularly with advertising and and these types of things. Study after study after study, as both of you know, show the really negative impacts that this kind of targeting has on young people, whether it's from body imagery to any number of things. But while this is a real interest and a real issue and a real concern, Alan McLeod, do you see that as something that is legitimately being brought forward as a we need to regulate and do something about this atmosphere in the U.S.? Or do you also wonder about the potential for this being an emotional Trojan horse to get people on board to get a process started that the American public likely won't pay enough attention to, to watch devils in details materialize? I think that's an excellent question. And it seems that all of these groups are always seeming to use certain issues to push the idea that maybe we need more control. And it always seems that it's the same solution every time, which does make me concerned that it is a Trojan horse. Advertising to children is, you know, frankly, just an awful thing. I know, as you said, a lot of countries, particularly Scandinavian ones, Sweden doesn't allow any advertising to children. Facebook has been designing for quite some time uh, a version of Instagram that's supposed to be for uh, kids. That really received a huge amount of backlash, so they've put that on hold. Even groups like Amnesty International said it was entirely incompatible with human rights, especially when you look at the fact that child psychologists and other scientists are saying that we should really all be reducing our screen time, especially children and especially young children, because it's very deleterious to their health. So ultimately, it depends who's really advocating for it. If it's, you know, pressure groups or academics or grassroots organizations, then it can be a very positive thing. But ultimately, most of this conversation is happening within the halls of elite power. And so ultimately, I don't think they're going to have our best interests at heart any point. They're doing it for their own reasons. Perhaps it will be a positive uh, step, but frankly, you know, if history is any judge, it probably won't be. Well, Nolan Higdon, you mentioned Renee DeResta earlier from New Knowledge, company that changed its name to Yonder. Usually when when the going gets tough, these companies change their name and morph into other things. But DeResta said that we were in an information war, and we wrote about this in the United States of Distraction. 
And basically, the human mind is the territory. And if you aren't a combatant, you are the territory. That very much seems to be commensurate with the message from Francis Haugen, who's then begging the Congress, you must act, you must act to save the children. You must act to save us from this misinformation whirlwind that we've whipped ourselves into. But let's not forget that it's also organizations like Duresta's New Knowledge, whose CEO, Jonathan Morgan, was involved in creating bots and AI and algorithms to screw around with the Alabama special election. He was even suspended from social media as a result of it for some time. The New York Times even said that he was perpetrating a false flag through this election effort. So these are the companies that are the ones telling us we're an information war. We have no choice but to step in. And then as Alan McLeod was alluding with these certain topics, they need the public to take a certain side, whether it's a certain side on COVID, a certain side on Russiagate. So how do we unpack this, Nolan? Because on one hand, we know that there are real threats and real challenges and real problems. But yet now we're back to the issue of are the people calling for the fix the right ones? to even address it. This is where you sort of have to put your faith in the democratic process. And that is that folks need to take action to shape that process. So could you just put it in the hands of these shadow organizations or, or companies or, or governments? No, I don't think you can blindly do that. Um, I think it's up to the electorate to not only um, formulate and force a plan, but hold leaders accountable to implement a said plan. I think that's sort of at the heart of democracy. I recognize that that's easier said than done, but I also want to remind people how far we've come. Ten years ago, big tech was taking credit for democratic movements in the Middle East and like Occupy. And those of us who were paying attention just kind of had to roll our eyes and be like, come on. And, but the public was totally believing this stuff. So 10 years later, at least there's like some skepticism and area for conversation. I think we forget what it was like before. But, you know, my, my bias, I'm an in the tank person who believes in democracy as long as people inform themselves, participate, and hold leaders accountable. I think that's sort of the, the best way forward. But to your point, yeah, you couldn't just blindly put it in folks' hands and expect a result that's going to be beneficial for the people. So Nolan Hagen, much like how we've looked at the tired term fake news, one of the silver linings of the weaponization of that term has been to have the meta conversation around the problem of propaganda and censorship in a very real way, maybe in a way that renders it almost seemingly impossible to ever resolve the issue, given how it's been weaponized for in partisan fashion. But at least we're able to start addressing it. And we have seen an uptick in both media literacy and critical media literacy coming into our schools a little more, coming onto the radar more. There are some solutions. The fact that we are talking about it, even through a cynical lens, here we are back front and center looking at the problems of social media and misinformation. Alan McLeod, we're running out of time here in today's program. What are your thoughts on moving forward and um, what are your best hopes coming out of the current reignition of this discussion? Well, I think stuff like critical media literacy is desperately needed in the US. It is extraordinary how many people cannot tell the difference in studies between advertorials and genuine journalism that uh, they don't know the difference between an argument and a factual statement, that people will simply believe posts that they see on image websites there is an absolute desperate need for critical media literacy or any sort of media literacy because, yeah, we live in this world which our education system is really geared around a 20th century framing, but suddenly we're in this complete new era of modern technology. And so ultimately, I think there is an enormous need for this. 
Whether there's anything uh, hopeful on the horizon, I don't know. I mean, we've seen a lot of new media outlets springing up. We've got a new system of funding these media outlets. A lot of people are much more willing to donate to listener-supported radio or viewer-supported news or just guys writing on Substack or whatever. So I think that is at least a positive step because ultimately I think we need to have media outlets that are beholden to their viewers or readers via small donations, a lot like how some certain politicians in the U.S. are now beholden to their small donors rather than these enormous corporate packs. And likewise, media outlets are the same where they are you know, funded by these enormous multinational corporations and they daren't uh, bite the hand that feeds them, that makes them completely beholden to the 1%. We need media that is beholden to its readers in comparison. Certainly, corporate oligarchy, plutocratic political control, those are the elephants in the room here that apply to all of the situations that we're facing, whether it's election integrity, climate crisis, the media in general, social or journalism, has been really controlled by these small myopic corporate interests and they haven't been in the public interest and one of the bigger solutions has been proffered of course is to have a robust public investment in an information ecosystem and an infrastructure but that does require political will and billions of dollars which apparently the u.s has to spend on other things nolan higdon let's bring you in here just for the last words on the significance of public media one of these solutions that never seems to come up in a lot of these congressional discussions is just the wholesale public financing of media in general and putting it in the hands of the public. I often get asked to give talks on fake news or teach classes on fake news. And I think people are surprised. I usually start those talks by explaining to them what journalism is, because before you can understand the fake version, you need to know what actually journalism looks like. And in that discussion, I point out that the whole protection of journalism in, in the United States and many other countries, this isn't just the U.S., but that's usually what I talk about, is predicated on the idea of serving democracy. It's a public good to have journalists doing critical work, holding the powerful accountable, shining light on, on things the public needs to know. And so when you really frame journalism in that way, and you start asking people, a lot of what they consider news doesn't fit into that definition. It's celebrity gossip, it's false information, it's misleading stuff. And so then I think once you get, and this is another argument for critical media literacy, once you get to that point, you can convince people why public funding is needed. You've been listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Unthinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds political ties, habitualized alibis, disguised another guise of democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured made for why taxing while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity citizens, and the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach, all potential fame at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that.